0: We begin this morning by asking you what you believe your identity will cost you. What do you believe your identity will cost you? In the past 100 years, for Christians at least, that question has not been one that we've had to wrestle with too much. For the last century or so in this nation... Being a Christian, having an identity in Christ has meant good things at times. It has meant helpful things at times. It has given you a voice in the public square, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. But as the great prophet Bob Dylan once said, the times, they are a-changing. And so I ask you this morning... What will your identity cost you? One of the things that we have not got our minds around very well, but I think we will in the years and decades to come, is that living out what you believe, your identity, always costs something. Yet, identity, who we are, what we believe to be true about ourselves, is where we find our very purpose. And so we have to ask ourselves this question, what will our identities cost us? We live in a time where the phrase cancel culture has become popular, where when someone disagrees with you or is not falling in line with the status quo, they are set aside. They are quieted, they are forgotten, they no longer have a voice. Which may very well be what is in store for us as Christians. And so, as we come back to the book of Acts again this morning, this is the question that we are presented with in the next passage that we get to. You'll remember back in the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus, still on earth, at least for that first part of chapter 1, gives his apostles, those witnesses, those that he had chosen, the 11 minus Judas, A mission. He tells them that they're going to receive power from on high through the Holy Spirit and that they are going to go first to the city of Jerusalem in which they were at, then to Judea and Samaria, and then to the very ends of the known world. And as we've made our way through the book of Acts, we've seen just this happen. Jesus is not just a good fortune teller, but he is the king of all history and he knows what's going to happen. And so he tells them, and it comes to pass. We saw also that as this message began to go forth, it did not go forth like it was going down a water slide. No, it hit many bumps along the way. The biggest being hostility from the Jewish community and specifically from the Jewish leaders. They had already began to persecute the church to beat and flog the church, to imprison the church. And a few weeks ago, we saw this hit its climax as one Stephen, who was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, was taken outside of the city and giant stones were heaped upon him till he died. Today, as we continue to expand the circle out, as we saw last week, in the week before, that the message would go to the Gentiles, to those who were not Jewish by birth or by faith. We see that things don't get much better. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Acts 11:19. If you forgot your Bible at home or didn't bring your own Bible, that's fine. We have some there in the pews in front of you. And Acts 11:19 is on page 865 if you want to get there real fast. If you're new to the Bible, we're really glad you're here. We love the Bible in this church, and so this is a great place to learn about it. If you're new to the Bible, though, when you get there, look for that big number 11. That's the chapter. And then look for that little number 19, and that's the verse. And that's where I'm going to begin reading in a minute. I say this as much as I remember to. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you've also come to the right place this morning. Because we have some Bibles we'd love to give you today. Or if you know a neighbor who needs a Bible, we have some free Bibles in the foyer. They're blue. Grab one on your way out. We'd love for you to have one. Well friends, this morning, I'm going to begin by reading the first section of our passage today, Acts 11:19 through 30. Let me invite you to stand once more, out of honor for the reading of God's holy word. This is Acts 11:19 through 30, God's word to us today. Now in those, these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Friends, that is the first section of what we're going to be reading today. We're going to be going all the way through chapter 12, verse 25. And really, this section breaks up into three sections. Two big sections and then a small section at the end. And so, if you want to take notes and write down kind of the road map for where the sermon's going to be going, these are going to be my three points. I'll go ahead and give them to you now. The first one is the ordinary provision. The ordinary provision. I'll explain what that is as we work through it. Point number two is the extraordinary the extraordinary provision the extraordinary provision and finally the God of both the God of both and as we look at each of these my prayer for us is that we would come to see this God who provides this God who provides everything that we need ordinarily and extraordinarily and that as we see him we would glorify him because he is deserving of all praise and honor and glory Alright, let's jump in then with point number one, the ordinary provision. The ordinary provision. And we see this there in verses 19 through 30 of chapter 11. If you look back there at verse 19, you see we're reminded what happened back in Acts chapter 8. We're going to read it here in just a little bit. But back in Acts chapter 8, we were told about, I mentioned a minute ago, that Stephen, who's this man who's full of faith in the Holy Spirit, that he's, he's killed After he preaches the gospel to the Jewish leaders. They drag him out of the town and they kill him. And it says there that after this a great persecution arose against God's people. So much so that everybody except really the apostles were scattered. They left. They ran for the hills. They had to get away in the threat of persecution. The Jewish leaders were coming against them. And as we even jump into this and get into this and and consider this. From our own point of view today, even as I was studying this week, this first verse has got me. Because it, it reminds me and convicts me in my own heart, considering what these early Christians had to go through. How much I moan and groan about my life. That these early followers of Jesus were forced to leave their homes and to go to other cities full of people who were completely different than them and to make their home there. We see there as they went though that they didn't go silently. This is what I love that even in the face of persecution they're not quiet about it. You look back there in verses 20 and 21 but there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene I'm sorry, jump back to verse 19 really quick. Uh, As far as Phoenicians, Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except the Jews that even as they went as they met other Jews, they were speaking the word of God to them. They were preaching the gospel. But there we find that there are two unknown folks who come up, who rise to the surface. There are in 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Now, Hellenists there, that just means the, the Greeks, the Gentiles. And so you have these, these people who aren't named here, that once they get to these other cities, they begin not just speaking to Jews, but also to Gentiles. Considering that, that this week uh, around our dinner table reading this passage with our children. We got into the conversation of, of fame. I, I know some of you have felt this. If you're being honest. When you're a kid you want to grow up and be famous. You well, want be a famous basketball star. A famous baseball star. And we were talking about it as a family. And just pressing in here. The, the radicalness and, and the counterculturalness of what we read. That there are these people mentioned here who take the word to the Gentiles in these places like Antioch. And, and it says that there in verse twenty one that the hand of the Lord was with them. This this idea of hand, we're going to see this later on in this passage, it, it denotes God's power. That the power of God was with these people as they went, and that the Lord blessed them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord, and yet they're not named. They are not named. We do not even know who these people were. What a thing to be. What an aspiration for us ourselves. We see there, as we just read, that Jesus blesses their efforts. He blesses their efforts. Their gospel preaching has a gospel response. It is a gospel response. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to see. This is what we are calling you to. That the gospel of Jesus Christ demands a response. With C.S. Lewis, who famously said that we have to make one of three decisions about Jesus either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. But you must have a response. And we see what that response is here in these believers in Antioch. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed. That is, they had faith. They believed that what God said was true. And that Jesus and what He said was true. And when they believed, what did they do? They turned. It's the word we throw around a lot. Repentance. That they turned from the world and from the false gods that they had been worshiping. And the false pathways to joy that they had been walking down. And they turned to the Lord. Now it's worth pointing out here because this comes up several times in this passage. I mentioned it before in the book of Acts. But whenever you see the word the Lord in Acts, you notice that like many times in our Bible, it's not in all caps. When you see the word Lord in all caps in your Bible, it is God's holy name in the original language. The name Yahweh. But throughout the book of Acts, we don't see that very often at all. In fact, we see this word, Lord, which means master. And specifically when we see this use of the word Lord in the book of Acts, it's pointing us to Jesus himself. And so they're not just turning to God generally, but they are turning to Jesus specifically. News of this comes up to those apostles who are still in Jerusalem. That Gentiles, not just Cornelius and his family, but Gentiles over in Antioch have now believed. They no doubt are very excited about it and so they send somebody down there. And who do they pick? You may remember it's Barnabas and he's come up several times already in the book. Barnabas means son of encouragement. They send their best encourager down to Antioch to build up the Christians there. He says there in verse 24 that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. This is, again, the, several times this, this phrase gets used about several folks throughout the book of Acts. It's, it's the way Luke is telling us that, hey, this is really a Christian. And this is really someone who's doing a good job. So, so, so Luke tells us that Barnabas was this man who was good and he's full of the Holy Spirit. And he's full of faith and he shows up. And how does he encourage? Now I think this is important for us to see because some of you are just spiritually gifted to be encouragers. Some of you are not. You you find yourself falling more on the discouraging side of the coin. And yet, God's Word commands you to be encouraging. And so, how can somebody who's naturally discouraging be encouraging? Well, we can look at Barnabas here and get some tips. So let me point them out there. Look back at verse 23. When he came... Okay, so he's there. Step number one. Be there. Be present. What does he do? He saw the grace of God, number one. This is huge. That he would show up and that he would take note, that he would acknowledge, that he would view God's grace at work among the people. He shows up and he realizes it's not a false gospel that has taken place, it's not some unrealistic emotionalism that has taken place in Antioch. No, he sees the very grace of God at work in the people. And so what does he do as he takes note of it? He rejoices. It says he was glad. He was glad. He rejoices with those who are rejoicing. I think for those of us who struggle with discouragement, this is, the, this is a big step in the right direction. Of finding joy in the grace of God and how God is at work. And finally, the biggest one, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He exhorted He commanded, he encouraged, he built them up to do what? To remain faithful. To remain faithful. What what, what a call for us in our own lives. That as we're building relationships with one another, as we are discipling one another, as we are being the church that the Bible calls us to be, that we would take up the call of Barnabas here to exhort and encourage one another to be faithful. To have that long obedience in the same direction. To keep going in a world that jumps ship when everything gets hard. There's a lot for us to learn in Barnabas' example. So My encouragement to you as your pastor is to take these, these three or four things up yourself. Encourage somebody this week. It's what discipleship is. But then he does something that should be odd to us. And now some of y'all have read your Bible enough that this kind of just flies by you. You don't notice it. But what does Barnabas do then? He turns and leaves Antioch. And he goes and finds Saul and Tarsus. Now Saul, remember who he is. Saul is this persecutor of the church. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews and he hated the church. He was killing Christians. Okay, so just to make it as plain as possible, he is the very reason that they had went to places like Antioch, like Phoenicia, and like Cyprus. But, we read back in chapter 9, that Saul has this experience on the road to Damascus to go arrest some more Christians. When Jesus steps in via a bright light, speaks to Saul and gives him a brand new heart, gives him a brand new life, and gives him a brand new purpose. So now Saul, the one who had once persecuted, or one who had once persecuted, now becomes the persecuted himself. And so he's forced to flee back to his hometown to Tarsus. And Barnabas goes and gets him. Now this is several years later. This is one of the things we miss in the book of Acts. We think it all just bam, 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 bam. This This is several years later. Saul's just been hanging out in Tarsus. And Barnabas goes and he finds him and he brings him back. Even though it's been several years, though, you have to know that the people in Antioch, when they saw Saul show up, they had to be like, what is this guy doing here? Can we trust this guy? Is this guy, is this the guy? This is the guy, the the reason we're here. And yet, we see that they give themselves over for a whole year. Barnabas and Saul labor among the Christians in Antioch, teaching them, discipling them, and building them up. God and His great providence here, and the great economy of God, is able to take the one who had caused the scattering to now encourage the scattered. He takes the one who had once persecuted God's people to now build them up and encourage them. And cause the word to grow. Saul is fulfilling the very purpose that God gave him back in Acts 9 that he would go to the Gentiles. We see him beginning to do it here. He begins to take center stage in this book. Before we move on, let's not miss the end of verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Some of you who have been a Christian for a while miss the weight of that verse. But oh, what a joy to be called a Christian. The word means follower of Christ. That's it. It's simple. And for many, especially in this time, it was used as a derogatory term. It was used as an insult. Oh, you're a follower of that Christ. But here we find our very identity. This is the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It is who we are. It is what people who have believed the gospel are. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, we are glad that you are here so that we can make clear what a Christian is. And we see it in these people. Christians are people who have heard of what Jesus came and did. That He came and He lived a perfect life. That he, he never sinned. And then, as an offering of Himself, gave Himself over to death. Allowed Himself to be arrested. Allowed Himself to be beaten. Allowed Himself to be crucified upon a cross. And died shedding His own blood so that He might be a payment for our sin. When all other religions say, this is what you have to do to get to God. Christianity says, no, this is what God has done to get to you. And so he did. And so in following him, it means we look to him for everything. For salvation. For peace. For hope. For justice. For joy and satisfaction. He is the very reason that we gather. And even in the face of a world that hates it, spits upon it, slaps it, beats it, and kills it, we wear the name of Christian with pride. Because we boast in Christ, and Christ alone. But they don't just take up the name, they act like it too. We see this in 27 through 30. There's some prophets who come down from Jerusalem. And I know some of you, when you hear the word prophets, you think about TV preachers and you get a little scared. The prophets here, though, are good prophets. And we know that they're good prophets because we specifically hear about this man named Agabus who foretold by the Spirit. So he has the stamp of the Holy Spirit. So we trust he's a good prophet. And he's good because what he says is right as well. And so these prophets come down, this, this one, I, I don't know who's next to have a baby in here, but if you have a boy, Agabus is a great name. Named Agabus, he comes down, and they say, hey, there's going to be a famine over all the world. Luke gives a stamp of verification on this. He says, this happened in the days of Claudius. It's between 44 and 47 AD that this takes place under the reign of the Roman emperor Claudius. We see here that these Christians in Antioch then take up a collection. So when I say that they start acting like Christians, this is what I mean. They sacrificially give to serve and help others. They take up the cross of financial sacrifice to help others. And here's a couple of things that are really cool about this. Okay, So for you Bible nerds, you're going to love this. For everybody else, try to love it. Number one, Antioch was the third biggest city in the known world at that time. It was an economic hub. It was a metropolitan place. You had all kinds of people there. All, and and it was, economically it was booming. Judea, on the other hand, was a poor place. It was a place that didn't have a lot of money. Not a lot of income. Not a lot of people coming through it. It was pretty isolated where it was at. And so we see here that the Christians who have means, those who are strong financially, take upon them the burden of the financially weak. But here's what's really cool about it. Is that the Christians in Judea had a Jewish history. But not the Christians in Antioch. That we see that it is these Gentile Christians. Those who would have been looked down upon. Because they were not enough in some Jewish Christian's eyes. It is those Christians who take it upon themselves to rise up and love their brothers and sisters in Judea. Friends, I think there are quite a few applications that we can take From this. First. You see there. In verse 29. The personal willingness of it. I'm sorry. Let me start here. The corporate determination of it. Verse 29. So the disciples determined. They determined as a church. Now I don't know if they had a members meeting. And they all voted or not. But they all determined together. As a church that they were going to do this. So there was a corporate responsibility. But it's followed then up. And girded up by a personal willingness to do so. Everyone according to his own ability. What this means for us, then, as, as we seek to live in this way, is that taking on risk and serving and caring will not look the same for everybody. And yet they do it together, but they do it with a specific goal. They do it with a specific goal. And this is really the, the job of the church leaders here and Barnabas and Saul that they go then and take the money and give it to those elders who are in Judea they give it to the elders and let the elders decide what they should do with it and what would be best and so finally though the thing i want to point out for us and for us to continue to carry out as a church ourselves is that these are not just individual christians helping individual christians These are churches, helping churches. Friends, I believe in our own day. It is one of the big detriments to local churches. Is their unwillingness to serve and to love one another. Instead, you see churches that rise up and start playing turf wars and deciding... Oh, we're not going to help that church because they may take people. Or they, they may do this or that. They're too close to us. Friends, we see nothing of that here. We see an example of what it looks like for a church to serve and help another church. This is something that we as the elders have been praying through ourselves. What does it look like for us as a local church to serve and to love other churches in this area? And by God's grace, he is already at work in that as we providentially are going to be welcoming three new members tonight that came from Open Bible Baptist Church. And they're going to be joining here. God is at work in this way. Don't discount it. Don't discount it. God provides, then we see, in ordinary ways, friends. There are ordinary ways that God has provided here. He provides through the preaching of the gospel, through the encouragement of Barnabas, And through the churches serving one another. But he doesn't stop there. He moves then in extraordinary ways. So would you go with me then to Acts 12, 1 through 19. Let me read that entire section for us. As we now see point to God move in extraordinary provision. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. The angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said... Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the, day was, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers of what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. I want to read that whole passage, that whole section, because it really gives us this crazy story. And there are several different pieces of it that are just, just astounding and just so exciting to read. First, we find that things with the Gentile leaders are no better than they are with the Jewish leaders. If you thought that it was just the Jewishness that made the leaders of Judaism push back against the Christians, you're wrong. The Gentile leaders, Herod being the chief of them, the king who was put over Judea, hated them just as much and found a lot of joy in bringing them to trial and killing them. Friends, I bring this up because in the same way, we should not be surprised when assault comes upon us as Christians from all sides. It should not be any surprise to us that there may be some who claim the title of Christianity or claim to be religious in their own way who do not like what we have to say about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on the other side, we should not be surprised when the government or the powers that be do not like the message of Jesus. It has been this way from the beginning. And so we find here that James specifically is put to death. And anyway, I find it interesting In God's providence that he had us reading through the gospel of John during this time. And specifically in our Bible studies this week. We looked at John 15 and 16. It's where John talks about the persecution that will come from the world. And the hate that will come from the world. Because we are followers of Jesus specifically. John writes his gospel many years after this. He writes what Jesus told him. And you have to think as he's writing about what Jesus had said so long ago, he has to remember that his own brother, his own business partner in fishing was killed at the hand of Herod. That it all that Jesus said had came to pass and yet it was worth it. I, I bring this up because there are some of us who are faint hearted in these days. I feel wore out, feel weak, feel distressed and saddened by where you see our world, our culture, everything going. I bring it up because there is reason here to keep going. There is reason here to keep standing. There is reason here in the fortitude and the fidelity of John, James, Peter the apostles, the early Christians, for us to keep going as well. So then we see Peter brought forth. Peter's brought forth and he's put in prison too. Herod intends full well to kill him. But what do we find Peter doing? He's sleeping. We talked about this passage this week in our elders meeting, and David pointed this out, and I just thought it was too good not to mention here. Peter is sleeping in his cell. The brother has been chained. He has two soldiers on each side of him and two more in front of him outside the cell that's leading to the city. He's got to think it's over. He's got to think this is it. He's got to think, okay, I finally met my match. Herod is going to chop my head off. It's done. And yet the brother is asleep. David's question that I want to ask you guys is, if you were in jail, would you be sleeping this soundly? And he is sleeping soundly in case you missed it. The angel shows up, light shows in the cell, and he still has to kick the guy in the side to get him to wake up. It's an experience I have every once in a while when I try to get Megan out of bed. But, just kidding. But there's a sense here of the peace of Peter. The willingness to keep going forward. And I bring all of this up because I want to specifically encourage here. Those who are fathers and those who are leading their families. Are you equipping your family? With this kind of fortitude. With this kind of resilience. With this kind of peace. When the world around us is in upheaval? How do we do it? We do it by steeping our families in the Word of God. We do it by steeping our families in prayer. Not just praying with our family, but making it a priority to have our family praying with others. We esteem the local body of believers. We join in covenant together. We help arm one another for battle. Some of you wives think, man, I wish my husband... Would do that. Let me tell you this. It's not unsubmissive of you. And overstepping your bounds. To tell your husband. Hey I need you to read the bible with me and my kids. Hey I I need you to to get up off the couch. So we can get to prayer service on Sunday nights. Are we arming ourselves. To be as Peter here. And the other Christians. Preparing to go. Into a world that would want nothing. To do with Jesus. Jesus. So the angel shows up and we begin to see God provide in extraordinary ways. You see there several things that happen. Light sweeps into the darkness. Peter's chains fall off. The guards are incapacitated. It says that they walk past them. I don't know if they, they were sleeping soundly or the angel had put them to sleep. The text doesn't tell us. But they go on past and the door just swings open. They step out into the city. And Peter thinks he's still asleep. The dudes think, okay, I had that crazy vision about the sheep coming down with all of the animals on it. This must just be the same exact thing. But then he realizes as he's out in the street, and I wasn't sleepwalking. That wasn't a crazy trip. That actually just happened. And we see then what Peter says in verse 11. The amazing truth that I want to press home here. Now I am sure that the Lord has sent His angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What we find is that Jesus will not be stopped. I remind you of it again. We've seen it over and over in this book. Jesus cannot be stopped. And His kingdom cannot be chained. It cannot be guarded. And it cannot be locked behind a gate. And even if it is, he can still work in extraordinary ways. Now, I realize some of us may desire an angel to step forward in this way. must be reminded that this isn't normative. The reason that Luke brings it up here is because it was crazy. And because it was something out of the ordinary. But that does not get us away from the reality that angels are at work among us, even when we don't see them. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1.14. Are they, meaning angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so just because you may not see an angel show up and give you a swift kick in the side does not mean that God has not sent his angelic servants around to minister to us in ways that we don't even realize. If you want to know more about that, I think we recorded a plowing and planting episode on angels and demons some point last year. So you can go find that. And so then we see that Peter once he's out, he goes and visits his friends. And what are they doing? They're doing the exact same thing that they were already doing. The thing that all of us need to be doing more. And that was they were praying. They were praying. They're still praying at this woman's house. Mary, the mother of John Mark. Now Luke brings this up because John Mark's going to be important later on. So, so kind of tie him off to the side he'll come back up Peter comes up he knocks on the door and Rhoda this little servant girl comes to the door realizes that it's Peter in her excitement she leaves him at the door locked outside and runs to tell everybody do not miss the humor of the Bible here this is a funny thing that happens that this little servant girl Rhoda another great name if you're having a daughter soon to take Rhoda it means rosebud it's it's just such a sweet little name this little girl he realizes that it's Peter and gets so excited and runs to tell all of those there. Peter's still standing at the door just tapping away. Let me in. Let me in. And they tell her that she's crazy. They tell her she has no idea what she's talking about. They miss what some of us really miss and that is the beauty and in the innocence of our children. Let's not discount the blessing of these little ones ourselves. They do say it is his angel. Now there's some dispute here about what they mean. Perhaps they mean it is that angel that keeps visiting Peter who's come to tell them that Peter has died. In the Greek, angel can also be uh, translated as messenger. So maybe they also can mean, oh, it's just a messenger to come tell us that they've killed him. We don't exactly know what they mean. But finally they do realize that it is Peter himself. And he quiets them down. He tells them everything that's happened. And he tells them to go and tell all of this to James and the believers. Now who is this James he's speaking of? Because we just heard that James, the brother of John, has been killed. So who's Peter talking about? He's talking about a different James here. It's James who writes the letter of James in our Bible. James who was the brother of Jesus himself. We know from history that James was one of the main leaders in the church of Jerusalem. So why does he want them to go tell James and all of the other believers what has happened? And I believe this is why. It's to give them again endurance. To give them reason to keep going. He's saying, friends, God has again acted in an extraordinary way. He has freed me from the clutch of Herod. God is at work. Jesus is on the move. Keep going. And so we have now a God who provides in ordinary ways. And a God who provides in extraordinary ways. Let's look at who that God specifically is with the last point. Point three, the God of both. Let me close by reading this section. Or close out the section we're going to look at today by reading from us from, to us from Acts 12, 20-25. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, there's another great name. I mean, this passage is full of good names for kids, you guys. Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country, that's Tyre and Sidon, depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man! Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now all of you kids who have not been listening the entire sermon perked up because I started talking about worms. Yes, this is good. This is gross stuff that we're about to get into here. But don't miss what is going on. That we see in a gruesome way exactly who our God is. First, we're reminded of who Herod is. That he is this king who is harsh. That he reigns with an iron fist. That he reigning and has all of these resources at his disposal. Has these different cities and these different places. On strings. And so you have these people in Tyre and Sidon. Who just want to get fed. Remember there's this famine that's happening. And they just want food. And he's mad at them about it. And they show up. And they convince the guy who who gets them the ear of the king. Blastus. They convince him. Let us go talk to him. And so they go in. And they talk to Herod. We don't know exactly what happens. As he dismisses him. He comes back. But it says there in verse 21. That on an appointed day. He puts on. His royal robes. He takes his seat upon the throne. And he delivers this speech. Delivers a speech to them. Now, it's interesting here. The Jewish historian Josephus recounts exactly what goes on here. And he, 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 he has some different details that, that kind of add and build up uh, everything that we've seen here. And one of them is he describes Herod's robe, what that actually looked like. His robe would have been this glistening silver robe that gave this, 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 this kind of scene of just glory and, and honor and just putting on this robe itself. But he stands up and he gives what, what had to be some kind of speech that, that granted them what they wanted, food, or at least gave them some hope. And so the people cry out the voice of a God and not of a man. At which point Herod should have said, what Peter said when he walked in and Cornelius fell down at his feet and began to worship him. I'm a man just like you. This food and this money and these resources that I'm about to give you as a people did not come from me, have nothing to do with me. They're actually given to me by the hand of God Almighty. But instead, Herod receives their worship. He receives their worship as a god he says that he alone has the power to bring life and death. It bowed their knee to another, but God would not leave it that way. We're told here that an angel of the Lord—remember the word "Lord" here—that it is an angel of Jesus, the angel of Jesus, that Jesus sends comes and strikes Herod down. Again, we know from Josephus' history of this that that what happens in this moment is that Herod himself falls over, clenching his stomach. And it's not until five days later that he actually dies. And it comes to find out that what had caused him to fall over and what later causes him to die is that he has become infested with worms. With a parasite of some sort. And we see that it wasn't just a natural thing that happened. He didn't eat some bad kebabs. It was the Lord himself who brought this about. Why is that? Why would God do such a thing? Children, listen in here. Why would God bring a wormy death to this king? Because of what Isaiah 42 8 tells us. God says, I will not give my glory. To another. What is the glory of God then? What is that? What does that mean? We use that word all the time. What is God's glory? Well, in some ways, we find out earlier in Isaiah 6. You have these angels around the throne of God. And what do they cry out? In Isaiah 6:3: Holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of His holiness? No. The earth is full of His glory. So kids, what is the glory of God, I ask you? It is when we get to see God's holiness all around us. And that is exactly what we get to see here. It's nasty as a king dying because he has worms in him. We see the beauty of of God, that He will not give His glory to another. What humility this hands to those of us who are in leadership. But the bigger principle here is that God provides, even in the midst of an evil government, that God provides and keeps His people, even when kings would spit in His face. Jesus will build His kingdom. Friends, this is the God that we serve. This is the God that we bow our knee to alone. This is our King Jesus. That he will build his kingdom no matter what Satan and the world may throw at him. Do not miss it. And because of that, he deserves all glory and honor and power and majesty forever and ever. Amen. Friends, I would ask you then, where do you need to remember that in your own life? Where in your own life do you need to remember that God deserves all the glory? I'll close with the question that I asked in the beginning How much will your identity cost you? How much will your identity cost you? More specifically, if you are a Christian, If your identity is found in Christ and Christ alone. Will you stand in him when it begins to cost? Will you trust in him when it's no longer easy? And when you hold on to him and all that he provides. When nothing in this world fits or works or helps. What do people who identify as Christians what do people who are called Christians what are people who are Christians look like they are people who take up these ordinary means that God has given of encouraging and remaining steadfast and devoting themselves to the word and sacrificing for others they are people who pray and ask God to move in extraordinary ways and they are people who give God the glory no matter what when we become people like that we fulfill what Jesus said so long ago in his sermon on the mount in Matthew five sixteen. in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven let us pray Father, You are due all of the glory and the honor and the power. Jesus, You are our King. And so we bow before You and worship. Spirit, we pray and we ask that You would come and work even now as we prepare to take this family meal. God, You are worth it. You deserve all the glory and honor. I pray if there's any here who do not and have not, turned to you and believed in Christ and given you that glory that they would even in this moment. Would you work in the hearts of men, women, and children? We ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.